A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. One of the most powerful figures in literature is the domineering father demanding the impossible of his offspring. He is Agamemnon in Greek mythology. He's Shakespeare's King Lear. And today he bestrides New York's interlocking world of money, politics and media in the brooding form of Logan Roy, the monstrous tycoon from HBO's hit television series Succession. And they've all been played by my guest, the actor Brian Cox. A proud son of Scotland with a career spanning six decades on stage and screen and the rave reviews and hardware to prove it. An Emmy, Golden Globe and two Olivier Awards on his mantelpiece. So this week we're asking a leading man who is good at being bad, what makes for the best villains in drama? Brian Cox, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Nice to see you again after all these years. Yes, we should perhaps let our audience in, in on that little, little secret. I came on a tour with the National Theatre oh, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall in Eastern Europe, and you, you were playing uh, King Lear. And some might say in succession, you kind of still are. <laughs> there's elements. Um, you have to accept that there's something kind of universal and archetypal about the characters, and particularly Logan. Lear, of course, is an archetype, so they they do cross over considerably. We might talk a, a bit about modern wealth and power and the power struggles of age and thrusting youth uh, in Shakespeare as, as we go along. But let's start with this moment in your career. You're in the 60th year of your career. Before we look forward, let's look back. How does this moment rank among the other 60, I get the feeling you're kind of celebrating it with Logan Roy, your character for, from Succession, whether you like it or not. The thing that's happened is that I've now lost my anonymity. And for 60 years, I always had an element of, is he? Oh, yeah, no. So there's always been that. And now that no longer exists. So in a way, I'm kind of mourning my loss of anonymity, but I'm also accepting it. And there's an element in me which, when I was younger, I, sp- I suppose it was what I asked for. And he always said, never, never tell God what you ask for, because you'll, you'll get it. I'm also a Gemini, so I have two sides of me that completely argue. This is a good thing, and then the other side says, this is not such a good thing. So <laughs> I'm caught in the horns of a, a dilemma. Of course, it's been incredible what's happened, and I feel that people who prophesied it would take me the long haul before I really got well-known, as it were. But I wasn't even so much well-known as become the sort of actor that I was supposed to be. It's kind of strange, but it's, it's also very nice. You know, I can't, I can't dispute that at all, you know. You're publishing a memoir, putting the rabbit in the hat, and, and there you write, you love playing Logan Roy, but what sets him apart from other stage and screen villains you've played in, in, in the past, whether it's Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter, Helen Goering in Nuremberg. Uh, obviously, some people look at you and think, you know, we can cast him as the big bad guy. 
I, I think that the real concern or the real job is to understand the humanity of people, to understand where they come from. You know, you know, if you look at a baby or you look at a, an infant, they, they, they don't come into the world bad. They develop it or they develop good. Those things are conditions and conditioning counts for everything. And Logan, I think there's a tragic element to Logan because he's, he clearly has had some kind of trauma in his life. We don't quite know what it is and we may never know what it is. And I'm not even sure if Jesse Armstrong is interested in what it is. The result is who he's become now. But from the actor's point of view, you have to really understand the life and the conditions that have made you and the decisions that you've come to, to stop talking, to be monosyllabic, because he's quite monosyllabic. And he is, he's a misanthrope. You know, he and I, you know, we have a lot of things in common. And the fact that we are both, both deeply disappointed with the human experiment, uh, especially at the moment, it doesn't look very good uh, with the crises we have around us. And it's interesting that COVID has given us a time to pause and reflect and now we have COP26 happening in Glasgow. The climate is going to hell in a handbasket, you know. So you, that affects you, you know. That, that's all part of the conditions in which you're living. And so somebody like Logan is a man who is ruthless, seemingly uncaring, but he actually, the one thing that's is his Achilles heel, but also something that partly reclaims him, is his love for his children. He does love his children. And he finds it impossible to express that love because, in fact, that love has never been expressed to him. It's really interesting that you say he, he loves his children because there's a, also an element in which, from the get-go, I remember sitting down to Series 1, Episode 1, when the, the succession story is, is set up. I mean, he plays them off against each other. He doesn't deliver on what they reasonably take to be his promise that he'll step aside. <laughs> Shades of, uh, of King Lear. King Lear, of course, goes, does it the other way around and tries to give too much away and hang on to it. But yes, there is love, but it's a dysfunctional love, isn't it? He says at one point to his daughter, do you trust me? And she has to say yes, but she doesn't trust him. Well, the love for his kids is tantamount. You know, it's, it's there. He just doesn't know how to express it. And that's what interests me as an actor is I'm not trying to be sympathetic. I don't believe in sympathy, but I do believe in empathy. I believe in trying to understand what the journey is to this point. Everybody loves speculating who it's, in inverted commas, really about, which probably drives you crazy. And then the leading candidates being, of course, the Rupert Murdoch's family, but also Sumner Redstone, that uh, huge kind of venture capitalist family, even the Trumps uh, as well. When you're looking at a particular scene and how you're going to address it, do you think, hmm, I've seen this or I've read this and I'm going to channel it into this family in the Roy's? Yes, eventually. But the problem is that if you're not very careful, you start to judge. And that's not creative judging. You have to allow things to take their own form and rather than sort of anticipate a result. The roots of the Redstone family, Murdoch, even the horrible pink Pinocchio, Trump, you know, there are roots there. You know, you can look at Trump and you can see this clearly was a child who had to survive this awful father. But then you look at his father and think, what was his conditions? You see, we're all the subject to conditions. Murdoch's the same. 
And that's what's interesting. The problem is capitalism. The problem is what do you need? How much money do you need to survive? And also there's a sort of propaganda about certain things that we are subject to that's visiting us every day. And now we live in a sort of relatively shall we say, not godless, but certainly God-challenged society, you know, that makes it doubly hard, doubly difficult. Uh, I'm reliably informed that Rupert Murdoch doesn't recognise himself uh, in this portrayal, and yet so many people do, and it is a media dynasty, it is a right-wing media dynasty, and it looks for political influence. That's going to play a, a role in uh, Series 3, for those of us who are still unpacking it. We won't, we won't give too much away there. But do you ever bump into anyone from, from the uh, news called Murdoch Penumbra who say, that is or isn't us? I had an exchange probably after Season 1, when I was in my local cafe having a, a latte and suddenly there was a voice behind me said, we're liking the show. And I said, thank you. He said, yes, yes, it's, it's difficult. I think it's more difficult for my wife than anything else. And I said, oh, I'm sorry about that. And your wife is having difficulty. He said, well, my wife is Elizabeth Murdoch. And that, you know, made me take a breath. And I thought, oh. And uh, I said, ah, but I, I got a perspective on it. And he did say, and kind of jokingly as he left, he said, can you be a little easier on, on her in the second season? And I thought, this is fine, but it's not Elizabeth Murdoch. It really isn't. It's Shiv Roy. And it's a different set of circumstances. Now, we try to make these equations and say, oh, these are all demons. These families are all demons, but it's not. The, the shades of grey and blue and green and all of that. My job as an artist is not to jump to those conclusions and to actually say, these are the Roy family. Succession struck a particular chord when it launched because it was Trumpy red zeitgeist, the dysfunctional family, the sibling rivalry, a leader both dominant uh, and also often quite random in his judgments. And of course, that focus on the media in politics. Do you think succession would have felt so timely if it weren't for the Trump presidency? The irony of ironies was the fact that we had the first read through of the, the, sh the show when Trump was elected and everybody was going off to see Hillary win. I was say in Scotland, about that, you know, that she was going to win. Yeah, I, I think that, of course, the kind of zeitgeist of the, them both does contribute to a sort of the conditions of saying, yes, out of these conditions have come that. And they all come together in a way in, in a sort of, they kind of pile up, really. And uh, the Trump presidency, as anybody, and I have, I lived in through it all, is, was appalling. And it was just the hardest time to be alive in America. And so much of the value of America, he destroyed, you know. Someone said to me, look, this show, you can read it as a bit of a sort of liberal piñata, beating up on the wealthy, and particularly that right-wing, right-leaning uh, family media business. Do you think that the lessons apply as much to liberal, left-liberal dynasties as they, they do to conservative ones? I mean, could it be also to an extent about the Bidens? I think it possibly could. I, I think there's a willingness about the Bidens, but he's also part of that that whole system, that American political system. And he can't escape that. I mean, clearly, Jesse has a kind of strong socialist view, but he's far too creative to fall into a kind of um, sword-shaking thing. I mean, it's, it's very Swiftian. The whole thing has a kind of satirical element to it, you know, because the, the, the use of comedy, the use of the, the humour in it, 
it, it gives it that sense of detachment that where you can look at it detachedly and not become like in many dramas where you're kind of swept away. But the irony is the show has swept people away because they're seeing people that they love to hate. And that's, that's again, the human condition. We, as humans, we love to look at people that we love to hate. And there's no getting around that. That's just who we are. Interesting that you, you mentioned the writer there, Jesse, a, a number of times. It does sound like this is this is something you create together. And I think you're, if I'm, I'm right in saying this, your theatrical background, also the theatrical, strong theatrical imprint uh, of many of the writers who were involved, including Lucy Preble, Lucy Kirkwood, it feels like it comes out of the theatrical tradition in a way that uh, a lot of other things that are, are watched in streaming, or I think what Shiv calls the box set death march, doesn't. Am I right about that? I think you are. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it, but I think you are. We've had a great tradition in the theatre of, of, of political writing, you know, certainly since 56, since Osborne, John Osborne, that whole, that whole thing changed, you know, really changed and became quite radical. And of course, uh, Jesse uh, grew up in that, in that atmosphere. So there is that tradition, you know, that sort of, that tradition and, uh, it's inescapable. And Lucy Preble, of course, Lucy is an extraordinary writer. And so there's a kind of, they've come together on something which is quite unique. And it's hit something. It's hit something which we had no idea of the effect it was going to have. I think there's clearly a line that you can draw with. And there is something essentially British about the show. And of course, there is that hidden critique. I mean, the writing that we do, we have have the scenes and they're written in a certain kind of way. And then we have these alt, what they call alt lines, alternative lines. And for example, Kieran Culkin, who, when we started the show, had never improvised in his life. He never, ever improvised once. He plays Roman, who's the the, the most kind of random of the tribe. But he's puckish, isn't he? <laughs> you never quite know what he's going to do next. That's right. And and he's a very, very sweet and very nice lad, Kieran. But he was totally thrown by the fact that he had got these alt lines. And there was two or three. Now he gets five pages of them. And now he can boogie like nobody's business. And now he can improvise. And it's just incredible to watch this kid grow and how he takes it on. And, of course, they use him as a linchpin in terms of the the comic element that's very strong in the show. I wondered if you felt that young actors would learn the craft of theatre and and take it to the screen the the way that that you've done here, or or whether there is now a desire in the profession to leapfrog uh, into now, what used to be only filming is now streaming and the power of the, the biggest uh, box sets and, and whether you feel that something is in danger of being lost along the way. Well, the the craft is, has been under siege for a long time, I think. You know, if you think of the actor Ian Holm, for example, he's a wonderful, brilliant actor, but he spent 10 years at Stratford before he got anywhere. Now, that would be unheard of. You know, guys come out of Stratford and they're playing Coriolanus straight away before any experience they've got or any craft they've developed. They're thrown in the deep end and that's a way of learning. That happened to me when I went to Birmingham Rep. But that was part of the process of learning that you went to these repertory theatres and you were thrown in the deep end because you only had three weeks to prepare or two weeks to prepare. So that was that was the great that was the great plus. But, you know, I I just think that, yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think that 
I feel for young actors nowadays because sometimes they can become disposable like Kleenex. And you say, give that girl, give that young woman a chance to develop in the way that she could develop. And let's see how the careers of Vanessa Redgrave, of the careers of Maggie Smith, or the careers of Dame Judi Dench, how they developed as actors and where they started from and how they grew and they blossomed. And sometimes we want to, we want to get the flowers far too quickly. What do you feel about so-called gender-blind uh, casting? I've just seen Cush Jumbo play Hamlet in London. If you see someone uh, cast in a sort of what would be a, a male role on the page, though, of course, it was, it was a bit of gender diversity was going on from uh, from the 18th century in terms of, of casting. Does it bother you at all? I mean, I think, I think a lot of people feel that, that there may be some limits to it and it's part of a welcome diversity question. Not everything works. Do you have any limits around that? No, on the whole, I don't. I mean, I sometimes when I look at somebody, when I look at, again, something historical and I see someone of a, a race playing a role that actually didn't exist for them at that time, and I kind of go question, but I'm not against them doing it, and I'm not against those barriers being broken down. I think they should be broken down. And as far as Chris Jumbo is concerned, I think it's fantastic that she's playing Hamlet, a black English female playing Hamlet. I think it's a wonderful idea, and I, and I applaud that, and I want to see more of that. But I think you've also got to be careful about how you present, and this is, I think, leads on to the confusion where we are at the moment. We really try to abolish our history, but we can't. You cannot abolish your history. You, you know, this is what's gone on before, and you are the product of that, whether you like it or not. Even in terms of rebellion or in terms of opposition, that is the case. You credit the social mobility of the 1960s in the UK as helping propel your career forwards. When you look around Hollywood and you see many of the leading British actors from privileged backgrounds, people like Eddie Redmayne and Benedict Cumberbatch, has the profession become too much a magnet for the well-connected? What are your own reflections on that? When I came to London as a young uh, actor uh, or a young acting student, I mean, I, I had a grant, I had living expenses, I had expenses for my scholastic expenses, it was phenomenal. And we were a lot poorer then than we are now, you know. And I was, I was a son of a widow, and it was just extraordinary. And then to come there in the wake of the wonderful free cinema of the late 50s, early 60s with Albert Finney, Alan Bates, Tom Courtney, it was an extraordinary time. And nobody was being judged. You were always encouraged to cross the barrier. But we are so feudal in this country that we revert back to that. We revert back to people being in their place. And sadly, that's affected the poorer element of the country. Now, I don't, I'm not going to dish Eddie Redmayne or Benedict Cumberbatch for, for their schooling. That's the what that happened. They, they were schooled. And actually, there was the money that was put into those schools. And so the Eaton has a fantastic theatre, apparently. And so does Harrow. I don't know. I haven't seen them. I'm not acquainted with that. But at the same time, you go, well, that's happened. But there is a whole lack. There's a whole lack of part of society which has been ignored. And it's very hard for a Brian Cox of today to make that journey. It was much easier in the 60s than it is now. I can't let you go without asking about your political passions. You're a very vocal supporter of Scottish independence. Do you think you're going to see it any time in the future? We probably don't have time to put the rabbit in the hat of, uh, of all the complex sort of strings that that would, would pull up. Realistically, do you think it's moving forward? 
I think it will gradually move forward. I think it's inevitable. Decisions have always been made on our behalf. I embrace Scottish independence because social democracy at that time in the, in the United Kingdom was failing miserably. It was a party that was a joke. You know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was a joke, but it's emerged really as a kind of social democratic party. And I think Nicola Sturgeon is extraordinary. I think she does an amazing job. And she's had a tough time recently, actually at home, you know, because the Scots are, they're very difficult when they get together. I, I want to see a kind of fairness, which, you know, Scotland, and I wasn't aware of this, it suffered so much from Thatcherism, the, the you know, the, the, the closing down of manufacturing industry. It, 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 it's, it's really, it's been really hard. And also we're very different. You know, the Scots are very different. We have a, we're Celts. We have a different sensibility. We have different cultural roots. You know, we're not the same as the South. I, I'm, only, I'm smiling at you because I'm a Celt. Well, the name like Anne McElvoy, you couldn't be anything else. <laughs> uh, by my freckles, uh, who kind of disagrees with you. You know, I, I think that there's something incredibly valuable in the United Kingdom. And I, I wonder, is that, would you have any regrets at all if the United Kingdom broke up this disputatious family that we're in here? Yeah, I would. I'm an Anglophile. London's like a city-state, but it still represents to me the freedom that I was given at a certain time in my life, which I never, I wasn't getting anywhere else, except in the theatre. The first time I walked inside the theatre, I got that, I had that sense of freedom. And it was, it was like so heady because it, because it was kind of egalitarian, really egalitarian is what the theatre is. And I, I love that. And that egalitarianism is what attracted to me America. And of course, now it's totally absent there, totally absent, because it's a money society. And I still think that Scotland, who's, I think, moved to a, from tribalism to a form of egalitarianism, the potential for Scotland is enormous. But, we, we, but we've, got the, we've got the sort of manacles around our ankles. You must come back on the show and, and we will fight the independence wars perhaps in a bit bit more detail if, we, if you uh, agree to come back to us as the politics moves on. You've played such a vast number of great characters. Uh, we started out at the top. I was remembering uh, seeing you on tour back in the, the 1990s. Of course, your career stretches back way before then. You've had the Shakespearean part of your career. You've now got the hit series on our television screens. What would it still satisfy you to play, whether it's a role that already exists or a, a role you want to exist, if Logan Roy's dynasty ever should come to an end? What's, what would you like to do after? We, we have this habit of wanting to stay around too long, you know. <laughs> Politicians do it all the time. And, you know, and, and, and a lot of American series, television series, you see they, they, they live well past their sell-by date. But the one thing I'm, I'm sure of is that Jesse Armstrong will not let our show go past its sell-by date. It's a moving-on experience. I have no sense of what I want to do next. What I want to do next will, will arise. It will come. If I keep in a kind of organic flow, it will come. Does Logan leave us a, uh, a lesson? It's, it's not a moralistic drama, but it is in the end about morality and amorality. Of course it is. And that's what it's about. And I'm serving that, that thing. And I have to do it, you know, warts and all. <laughs> I have to do it as the devil. Warts and all and a lot of helicopters and, and glitz and tragic comedy to boot. Couldn't be better, really, could it? What a combination. Brian Cox, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. 
And we'd love to know what you think. Do you love to hate the foul-mouthed and backstabbing Roy family in succession? And what makes them and the many irredeemable villains who litter literature and art so compelling to watch? Send your love-to-hate mail to podcast at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. And if my conversation with Brian Cox has left you with nothing but love for the show, then please do give us a rating on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really do appreciate it. Don't forget, the Economist Books and Arts team is here to filter the cultural goodies from the baddies, so you don't have to. You can read their reviews of the must-watch TV shows, films and plays on our website. And while you're there, why not become a subscriber and then you can access all of our must-have content. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.